Well, when I, uh, when I came into the, the church this morning and saw the transformation that had uh, magically taken place here over the weekend as a uh, number of y'all came in to decorate, and I, I looked up here and I thought, you know, this is, that's an interesting backdrop uh, for a sermon about death, right? It's, it's kind of cheerful, uh, and uh, death is, is not usually... But we've been working our way through the book of of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, and it is the theme of trying to understand what difference does the resurrection make to life? What difference does it make? What actually is good for us about Jesus dying and rising from the dead? And so we come to this place in this little community in, in ancient Thessalonica where Paul turns his attention not just to death, but to the end of life, the end of how, what we know of of this world and the very little tantalizing bits of what we know of the next. So let us uh, read this. You can follow along in your bulletin, 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Lord, we do give you thanks because you're a God who has not left us on our own. You have not left us without a word. Lord, you have provided all that we need for life and faith in you. You have provided uh, what we need to know you, to know your ways in the world and to know the hope that you can bring. Father, I pray that as we look at this text, as we consider these words of encouragement to these ancient peoples, Lord, that we would be transformed. God, that we would hear you, that we would see you, that we would know you. And God, that that knowing would turn to a longing and a love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, so... uh, there's a funny thing that happens in a preacher's brain, like when they know you're going to be preaching on a subject, is, is your antennas are, are up for any kind of discussion about death, any sort of, of uh, commentary in, in the world or in what you're reading or, or all of those things, because you want to know how is it that people think about it. So thankfully, you know, we've, this has been a week filled with, you know, Memorial Day memes and and all sorts of, of comments, uh, which are fascinating. But I think the most interesting one that came across is this little 
I don't know what the qualification is to call something viral, but this little clip of uh, Keanu Reeves, who was on uh, the Stephen Colbert's late night show um, this past week. And uh, if you're, you know, Keanu Reeves, the guy from The Matrix, real kind of straight-laced, serious kind of guy, and, and Stephen Colbert is um, just is a very obviously humorous, funny, but also very like serious Roman Catholic who, who takes questions of life and death seriously, but he also likes to antagonize his guests by asking them random, very serious questions in the middle of a, of a lighthearted exchange. And so they were joking about this, this movie uh, that Keanu is working on and, and joking about how if he, if he wasn't able to perform this task, the end of the world was going to come. And so Stephen Colbert looks at Keanu and he says, so now what do you think happens when we die, Keanu Reeves? Right? And the, the audience chuckles because they, you know, they realize that he's trying to put him on the spot, right, to, to make a funny response. And, and Keanu takes a second and then he says, I know that the ones who love us will miss us. And the audience got like real still and quiet because they didn't expect a serious answer to a, a question that was posed in jest. In but as they, they contemplated his words, I know that the ones who love us will miss us. You start to hear the audience start to respond. It's taken aback for a second they start to, to, some of them start to clap. Some of them say, uh, like an affectionate, aw. Like, uh, they, they begin to process and, and realize that maybe he said something of worth. And, and Stephen Colbert his, himself just sat there and, and for a full 10 seconds didn't say anything in response. And as I thought about this clip and as I thought about how it clearly resonated with the audience, and it clearly has resonated with this, what, I don't know how many people on Twitter, but they, they cared enough to repost it, right? This clip uh, that, that spoke to something that was universal, right? The question, what happens when we die? It's, it's a matrix of, of threats, a minefield of, of philosophies or religion that he could get himself hampered down in, but he, he instead chose to focus on something that we all know, that's a universal experience of death, and that is that death hurts. That death is painful. That death is a loss. That something that was is no longer. As we come to this passage uh, in Thessalonians, we come to a group of believers who were just brand new in the faith, brand new into this story of Jesus being the fulfillment of the Jewish Messiah, the, the one who lived a perfect life and who died that he could forgive us of our sins and who was raised to new life. And after 40 days, he ascended to the heavens with the promise that he would return in the same manner that he left. They were new to this story, but what they weren't new to was the pain and the bitterness of death, of the loss of their loved ones, of the loss of those whom they know. And so Paul writes to them because he wants them to understand how is it that this little 
snippet that Christ died and rose again, what difference, what earthly difference does that make for those who are sitting in grief and sitting in hurt? And so I want to propose for us two things that I think come out of, of what Paul is saying here. And the first is this, that we must grieve, that we must grieve death for what it is. But then secondly, that we must not grieve death for what it is not. Like my double negative there. That we must grieve death for what it is, but we must not grieve death for what it is not. And there's an important difference here. And it starts right off the bat in verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have Now, some of you um, have probably been around uh, a variety of of different Christians. And in fact, one of the, you know, when I think about that uh, Keanu Reeves quote, one of the reasons it probably sticks so well is that you've heard all of these religious people waxing on about this answer, about what happens after you die. and, And it seems to gloss over the most obvious part of it. It seems to, to say, well, there's a resurrection from the dead. And so this death is, is not really something materially important. It's just a, a, a phase. It's just a, a passing wind, right? They've gone on to a, a better place. I, I could probably talk a long time about the euphemisms we use when we talk about death to one another because we say the resurrection has made that death thing not being anything anymore. And Keanu says, that's stupid. Right? The, what comes after death doesn't matter until you first acknowledge what we all innately know to be true, and that death sucks, that death hurts, that loss is real. I think Paul understood this as well. He says here that you may not grieve as others who do not have So there's kind of two ways you could read that sentence, right? You must not, uh, one would be a a form of of Christian piety that says grief is for those who are less spiritual, right? And you would say, do not grieve because that's what the the people who don't believe do. Do not grieve because that's uh, someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection, but the other way to read it is to not grieve in the same manner, to not grieve according to the same story, the same narrative that the others do. And, and I think it's pretty obvious that it's the second. It's obvious that it's the second because we have these fascinating accounts in all of the Bible of folks who grieve. And they don't just grieve. They grieve like in a way that makes us uncomfortable, right? Like in the Old Testament, they would grieve for weeks in sackcloth and ashes over the loss of someone. Right? Paul speaks over and over again in other letters of, of the sorrow upon sorrows if, if one of his friends should die. But perhaps the most important one is this fascinating interaction that Jesus has in the Gospel of John. Jesus is out ministering and he has these, these three siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. His brother and two sisters whom the text says over and in various accounts, it tells us about Jesus' love for them and their love for, for Jesus. 
And the story in John 11 goes to, uh, to a place where Lazarus is, is dying, where Lazarus is sick, and the end is coming. And they send for Jesus to come because they believe that he might be able to heal him. And Jesus comes, but he comes later. And Jesus was not confused about what he was walking into. He says, we must go, we must go see uh, Lazarus and Mary and Martha because our friend Lazarus, Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I must go to awaken him. Jesus comes and he, he speaks to Mary and Martha and he says, your brother will rise again. But as Jesus comes to that grave, the text tells us that as he approached that grave and as he saw the sorrow that was on these people's faces, it says the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. That after when Jesus saw their weeping and that the Jews who had come, had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have they laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. It's a simple thing. It's a casual thing. But Jesus was coming to undo that death. He would tell Lazarus to come out of the grave. But here's the thing. Jesus knew what he was doing. Right? I used to uh, pretend to know something about IT for a little while. And I, I'd worked this little help desk at this little company. right? And, and you get all these calls of people in, in deep distress over uh, their computer not turning on or, or this email being lost or, or whatever the case would be. And, and um, it would often strike fear in me because I wouldn't know how to fix it, right? But there are times when you approach someone's cubicle and, and you can automatically see that the little light switch on their, uh, you know, their uh, pad where they plug things into... Um, Sorry, uh, whatever that thing is called, right? You can see that that's turned off, right? You approach the cubicle and you already know what the solution is. You already know how to take their woes and their sorrow away, right? Never once when I went into those cubicles was I like, did I sit down with the people and say, I can tell that you're really upset about this, right? I didn't, I didn't say, you know, I, I can, that'd be very frustrating. Right? Those are the things I said to the problems I couldn't fix. But if I knew how to fix it, I would say, hey, do you know what? I think I see it right now. Let me crawl under your desk and flip the switch, and it's all better, and it's all merry. If the resurrection was a fix-all for grief, if the resurrection was the answer that, that said you shouldn't grieve, that you shouldn't feel the pain and the hurt, then Jesus would have no reason to weep. Jesus would have no reason to feel the anguish and the sorrow and the loss. Jesus knew that in mere minutes he was going to see Lazarus come out of the grave, and yet the pain of death made him weep. And so I think when we read in Paul's words that we may not grieve as others who do not have hope, what he is saying, what he is implying, is that you do grieve but you don't grieve in the same way. You don't grieve for, for something that death is not. You grieve for what death is. And I would not just propose to you that Christians could grieve, but that Christians ought to grieve. 
because Christians have an understanding of the resurrection that, that tra radically transforms the experience of death. Christians must grieve because they understand exactly what death is, that it is an aberration, that it's a distortion, that it is a black stain on the way that things ought to be. Because the Christian story begins in Genesis where God made man and woman to live forever, forever, to live with him. When he comes there in verse 17 and he says, so we will always be with the Lord. He is reflecting on this story that death is not supposed to be there. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then death is both normal and death is natural. Death is natural to what we understand of the human body. Death is normal in that we see it all the time. In fact, you could probably even make the case that death is necessary, right? That it is necessary for the, that there's not an overcrowding. Death is, is a normal and natural. It's the thing you don't want. It still hurts and it's a loss, but it is at its surface a normal and natural thing. But for a Christian... For someone who has believed the story that God has written, then death may be normal to our experience. It may be something that we experience in our day and in our age. We, it's something we uh, know and see in a world that's broken, but it is not natural. Death is not natural. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. That when we consider the, the, the longings and the brokenness of our heart, the Christian story has an answer. And the answer is, is that you're supposed to feel that way. So rather than being the people who, who shy away and who dismiss the pain of death and the pain of sickness, Christians ought to be the people who grieve the deepest because they understand just how broken and just how wrong it is. It's kind of like a, a, a car repair that after you've paid this exorbitant bill, right, you're actually more resentful of the fact that you ever had to fix it in the first place. Death is not the way it's supposed to be, and so Christians ought to grieve. And they ought to grieve death for what it is. It is a complete distortion of the world God made us to live in. But, but we must not grieve death for what it is not. We must not grieve death for what it is not because the, the, the experience of death that we encounter can sometimes lead us to think of death in ways that are not true to the Christian story. There is a sense when we tell the story of Christ that we are saying that death is in fact a half-truth. That death, as we normally consider it, is not entirely right. One of the things that I think, um, if you have sat with someone in the hospital, right, and you have watched their, their faculties slip away from them, right, and as they get to a stage where they're not able to communicate, where they're not able to respond. Maybe they don't recognize their family members. Maybe uh, they just lie there groaning in pain. If you have sat with that person and held their hands, you, you can't help but feel a sense of isolation. 
that death is this lonely experience, that this person who's in front of you has gone to a place that you can't follow, that you can't know them. You can't be with them. If you've been at the graveside after, uh, uh, after a ceremony and you are the last one to walk away from the grave, you feel like you've just abandoned someone, that you've left them alone. When we come to this text, though, the first thing that, that Paul tells them is that death, death does not leave you alone. We are not stranded alone in death, but that we are with Christ. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They have gone into a place that we cannot talk to them. They've gone into a place where we cannot be with them, but they are not alone. We have not left them or abandoned them. They are with the one who has been into death and come out alive. They have gone into death where we cannot follow them yet, but they are not alone. They are with the Savior who has tasted death and come out the side. When it says that Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep, you have to understand that means that they're with him in order for him to bring them, right? Death is not the lonely devastation that we picture and that we can even at times feel it is, but there is one who is with us even in death. Second, uh, death, if you have, have uh, sat and you have watched the de deterioration of a body, of a person, of a life. If you've watched as, as mental uh, facilities leave, as their, their physical ability to get up and to move and to go and to do the things that they love to do, you have watched this person be robbed in so many ways of their dignity, of their glory, of the things that made them who they were, right? Their friends, their passions, their longings, the way that God uniquely equipped them to love and to serve in the world. And if you have watched someone die then you are, are, are often left with a feeling that their glory, that their particular personhood has left them, that it is gone forever, that it is unretrievable. But to that notion, Paul tells us a story. He tells us a, a glimpse of what's to come. You see, these people had watched their loved ones fall asleep and they wondered had these people just been absorbed into this cloud of witnesses this uh, unpersonal undefined uh, unparticular group of people and and Paul agonizes and he labors to convince them no 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 that there's coming a day when that person will not just come back to life to the sorrows and the brokenness and to the, the futility of their previous existence, but that they will come and be united with Christ in the air. 
This is a, a, a story, the image here is, is of a king or a special dignitary who returns to a city. And, and the caravan from the city of the most important people, the people who were the best representatives, the most dignified of the crew would go and they would meet the person while they were still away from the city. They would go gather around the king or the dignitary and they would escort them back into the city. The words here, the, the, the Greek phrase that he uses here connotates the coming of a king and it's only the most important who gather to meet the king and bring him in. It's only the people who find themselves with Christ in the biblical story who understand what their true glory is, what their true life is. When Paul says that the, the, that the dead rise first, what he's saying is, is, no, 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 no. Far from them being lost into some life force, far from them being lost into some uh, undistinguished cloud of, of life, they, they themselves will raise from the dead. And not just from the dead, but they will be raised into Christ's full and glory. That they will stand next to Jesus as the trumpets play. As the, the cloud descends upon the earth, they will be with Christ. They will be more themselves than they have ever been. So death does not rob us of our glory. Because in the resurrection is where we find our glory. And finally, Paul tells them that death is not the final word. He says at the end, so we will always be with the Lord. The end of the story is not death. Because you see, if there is no resurrection, there is no real answer to the brokenness and the anger that we feel. There's no answer to the questions of, of what pains us and hurts us the most. And so the best you can do is grief management. The best you can do is try to, to find some way to compartmentalize the grief that you are experiencing into a box because you don't have a place to go with it. And so you have folks who, who become illogically religious, right? They, they say things that they don't actually believe about God, about an afterlife. They, they become illogically religious because they need that, that little uh, Christian truism to make them feel like everything's okay, that there is life after death, but they don't actually believe it. It's just a way to distort themselves, to turn their eyes away from the reality. There are those who, who manage their grief through a, a strict mechanical, this is the way it is. It's part of, of living is dying, and that is what it is. And it's a little bit of the grin and bear it notion of grief, right? It's a way to take that grief and to put it into a box that fits on a shelf so that you can keep going on with the rest of life. There are many of us who on our grief, the way we get through the anniversary of the death or the way we get through the birthday of the one we lost is, is by simply being drunk all day because the pain is just too much to, to interact with in our right mind. Right? There are, of course, many folks who, even if they don't believe the resurrection, 
do all the healthy things and they, they get counsel and they discuss it with their friends, right? They, they, they honor the memories of those who they lost, right? But the goal of all of those things, all of even the, the most healthy of processings is to make the grief fit into a box so that we don't experience it. I want to propose to you that the resurrection moves us to reality. It takes our grief and it says you feel that grief and you labor over that grief because in your grief is where you find hope. It is not a compartmentalizing, but it is the, the natural fulfillment. It is the natural end of grief is to come longing for Christ's return. The end of grief is not death. It's not compartmentalizing it into a, a period of life so that you can engage life on all the other things. It is to take your grief and to labor so long with it that you cry out, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And finally, it says to encourage one another. That we could be the kind of community that, that doesn't shy away from our grief, but we can say the names of those who we lost to one another. That we can talk about the joys that that person brought in our life. That we can talk about the pain and the bitterness of their absence. We can talk honestly about how those who are hurting are doing because we don't have to avoid them. We can embrace them because it is in our collective grief that we find our hope. Encourage one another, it says, because we need it. Because the other narratives of death will, will triumph over our brains if we let them. A few years ago, actually before I went to, to seminary, um, Whitney's grandmother passed away. And they planned, the family planned a, a big extended uh, memorial service. But they, 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 they planned it a couple months in advance, right? It was, it was to be in, connect, in conjunction with a, a big family reunion, and so um, they decided to, to go ahead and, and to bury her body in the, the little tiny Kentucky churchyard where, where she had, had grown up. And so uh, it, it, since in part because of the last minute nature of it, it wasn't even the, the full amount of family. It was just a couple of us gathered at that spot to, to bury her. In fact, it was so... Out of, uh, out of place that, that since they knew I was going to seminary, right, the night before, they called and they said, hey, Ben, would you I don't, just say a few words? And as we got there to the graveyard that day, and it was a cold and blustery, cloudy, overcast day, and we stood there just a handful of people around this gravesite, and I was angry, not angry at someone, angry at the circumstances, like how did it come to this? This feels entirely wrong. This, this woman, I don't even know this woman. All I've known is, is these last couple years as I've watched her memories and her awareness slip away. I don't know this woman, and yet I am to be the one who, who says the last words over her body before she goes into the grave. And I was angry. Isn't there someone better? 
Orlean was a pastor's wife. Spent her, her whole life moving from town to town to town all over Illinois and Indiana. Who knows how many casseroles she made for those who were grieving. Who knows how many times she had uh, poured into the lives of, of those who were near her. And yet on this day, on her last day, there was none of those people. There wasn't even a pastor to do a proper burial. There was just schmo me trying to come up with something at the last second. I stood there, and as I looked down at my feet, I looked at the headstone next to me, and I see this name, Stephen Douglas. Her eight-day-year-old baby, who was born without a rectum, and, and that baby who she sat and nursed for eight days waiting for his death because there was nothing medicine could do to help her. I thought of this woman and I thought of all the things of her life. I thought of all the, the inappropriate sex jokes she would make over the, for the last years of her life. And I thought, has it really come down to this where none, no, no one is here? feels so lonely and abandoned. It feels like this woman that, that I'm eulogizing is, is just a shell, a fraction of the woman who she really was. I can't tell the stories of her dancing. I can't tell of her masterpieces in the kitchen. I can't tell of her friends or her loved ones because all I have known is, is an elderly woman who, who needed the kids to help her cut the biscuits on Christmas morning. I didn't know this woman, and it felt like she was entirely lost. But as I sat there, as I stood there on that day, and I looked at the grave of little baby Stephen, and I looked on the other side to the grave of her husband, Prentice, and the thought came to my mind, this passage came to my mind as I pictured those three graves opening up simultaneously. Those three graves answering the call of, of a trumpet. Uh, the three graves opening up to see glory. And I knew that death is not the final word for her. Despite the, 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 the fractions and the, the, the brokenness of her glory, of her personhood that I have seen, there will come a day when she would dance again in a new kingdom, in a new heavens, and a new earth. I sat there that day, and it felt incredibly lonely. But I knew that when the ground was covered over, we were not leaving her by herself, because she had gone to be with one who loved her the one who knew her the best, loved her the most, and the one who would give her new life in his glory. Death did not have the last word over Erlene. She will be with the Lord forever. And death does not have the last word on you or the person next to you or those who you have loved and lost. Death does not have the last word because we have a God who died and who rose again. And he's bringing us into his glory. Pray with me. Father God, I pray that as we go through life, Lord, and, and 
um, as we contemplate the reality and the brokenness and the heartache of death. Lord, as we grieve and we grieve deeply for what is lost and what is really lost. Lord, I pray that out of the words that we can encourage one another with, out of the words from the, uh, the Apostle Paul, God, by the very work of your spirit in our lives, Lord, remind us, convince us, tell us over and over and over again that death does not have the last word. You do. In Jesus' name.